Hey everyone, welcome to the Urban Tech Podcast. I'm John Tomey, the founder of Urban Tech and your guide to the intersection of cities and tech. This week, I got to sit down with Josh Mendelson, the managing partner at an investment firm, Hangar. Hangar has a really unique model for how it approaches venture and funding startups. The firm only invests in companies in the public sector. Check out the newsletter if you want to take a look at a few examples. I really enjoyed this conversation with Josh, not only because he's been around government at all levels, he's worked at the federal, local, and interacted work with state governments. He's a Silicon Valley veteran. He was an early policy person at Google around the IPO when he first started his career. So he's really seen the tech policy space from all different sides. He's also cool and you're gonna learn a lot. One quick ask before we get to the conversation, like any good podcast as we scale, I need your help to help optimize the podcast algo so people can find us on the platforms. Please leave us five star or four star reviews and tell everyone why you love the Urban Tech Podcast. And also feel free to shoot me a note at john at urbantechnews.net because I'm looking for feedback from all of you on what types of conversations and where we can go with the podcast, newsletter, and urban tech as we continue to build this product out for you. Thanks, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. I would love just at the top if maybe you could explain what Hangar is, what's the model, and how you're just involved in the city and tech space. Truly, John, thank you for having me. I think the easiest way to describe Hangar is we are an investment firm but we're an investment firm specifically looking to build technology products and services in the public sector market. What that practically means is we're building companies and we're building companies that are sustainable. We're building companies that are profitable. We're doing so on behalf of investors whose assets we manage, who are equally committed to this marketplace and the opportunity it presents. And it's probably worth sharing that the reason we started building Hangar and building it in this way, which isn't quite venture capital, but it's pretty close, really does come from the fact that as I looked at the landscape, having spent some time in government, spent a lot more time in Silicon Valley, it just became so clear to me that the public sector needed more innovation. It needed more invention. It needed more use of technology. And I threw my like at the time VC hat on and I was like, all right, let's go invest in some of these companies. And truth be told, like, as, as a lot of your listeners know, it doesn't occur to a newly minted Carnegie Mellon Eng graduate to be like, oh yeah, let's start a company that's going to deal with the public sector market because it's a little more challenging than building something for consumers. And it's a little more challenging than building something for say, like the enterprise market, the B2B market. But it's really, it's phenomenally rewarding to get to build these products and services where for all the talk that technology always has about scale, there's no other market that has the kind of scale like thinking about public sector does because, you know, quite literally, whether it's localities or it's states or it's the federal government, there's really no better way to touch millions and millions of lives by laying down code and that we get to invest in companies that do that every day, usually by building them and putting the teams together. Definitely a few points I want to get to there, but quickly highlight. So I know, and I think venture in that term gets really complicated these days, and I'm sure yeah. you know that. So in terms of the investment side, like seed, pre-seed, whatever language, what do you guys, what do you guys call it? So that's where we get a little funky. If you force me to stick to venture language, I'd say we're doing everything from where an angel would normally pop in or friends and family. 
to C to A. In practice, we look a lot more like what you would expect in private equity because we have a little bit of a different model. We are funding these companies from the get-go. We own them outright and we bring in really amazing management teams to come in and run them. And of course, the management teams get get a healthy chunk of equity. And in our view, that's how you're able to build really customer-centric companies like we do that are focused on a particular sector of market that I think, unfortunately, a lot of folks have found isn't one that naturally fails in a dorm room, come up with an idea and then hustle their way through through Sandhill Road to to product market fit and ultimately to success in our view is you got to get to know the customers, make sure they can transact, make sure it's going to work for them. And only then do you get to build that company. Only then do you get to advance that, that product. Or that service. I just want to. I so I think my Wi-Fi is a little, and I think I missed. I, I could tell it blinked out on that. We were making the Facebook quote, so maybe let's just like back up a second. Uh, yeah. Just make sure so it doesn't. So we catch it because I think that's really important. And I love that thought. So just what were you saying? Now was was the comparison about a dorm room and just being more thoughtful? Because this is something I'm always thinking a lot about, and I think I, I saw it like working in content. And it was. The Facebook antitrust stuff and questions really started coming up when I first started working in politics and stuff. So certainly, like I think people of my age and quote unquote generation, which is a very weird thing to say at 25 of politics, it's like very easy to hate on Facebook. It's like the new cool thing to do. But I'm curious, like, what were you saying there? Building companies, building products and services that then become companies for the public sector market isn't the kind of thing that happens because you've got two folks in a dorm room with an idea cooking it up who then do the chase on Sam Hill Road to capitalize it over time and quest to find product market fit and grow from there. To to work with the public sector market, you've really got to know your customer. You got to spend the time understanding what they need, what they want. Can they transact? And then and only then can you build that company you've looked to build. And and so that's what we spend all our days doing at Hangar, getting to know those customers, understanding what their needs are, understanding what the broader marketplace looks like. And in exchange, we have the ability to push code that impacts millions of people. So I'm curious, so why, how'd you move? I know we talked a little bit before I hit record about our similar interest in government, East Coast. How'd you end up in tech? How'd you go from government? I think a lot of people are finding that interest from the government side or finding tech a super attractive place. And then now realizing there's a lot of intersectionality between the two sides. And it's important to be very well I think just understand public policy than it was like 10, 15 years ago. That's so true. So I had the weird experience of I started my career in government and spent some time in a whole bunch of places, a little bit of time at Treasury, a little bit of time in the Department of Defense, a little bit of time on campaigns. And I thought of myself as like a political wonk and then had a job where I was working really long hours in DC and thought that moving 3,600 miles away to Mountain View, California, and worked at this little company called Google was like somehow going to give me a break. No way. I was sleeping on a couch there too, but it was great. And I really fell in love with tech. And I, I think I got lucky in that Google was going through a magical time of it. It just IPO'd and it bet on a bunch of us who were like young kids, relatively straight out of school. And they let us go and build what we thought was interesting. And, and I totally got hooked and spent a career in Silicon Valley as an entrepreneur who became a VC, who went back to becoming an entrepreneur. But, but ultimately, at some point, 
I admitted to myself that I was an East Coaster at heart. Now we can always debate what that means, but I was really attracted to New York because in so many ways, the tech community in New York looked a lot like what I first found when I showed up in Silicon Valley, like circa 2004, 2005. It was tight knit and really supportive. And that, by the way, is totally the case. It's like totally to New York's credit. But the other part relevant to your question about New York is one of the big differences between at that at, at that point, and this held even when I finally moved six years ago, I think the prevailing approach of Silicon Valley to government was some version of just leave us alone and let mm-hmm. us do our thing. Let us innovate because we know better than you. And hey, that's not how the world works. A lot of your, I think all your listeners know that it, it remains pretty important to engage with, with policymakers. And that's something that East Coast, particularly New York's tech, whatever you want to call it, leadership has always really understood that getting on that train and going down to DC and doing advocacy matters. And I think a lot of New York tech advocates, whether it's like Brad Burnham and Fred Wilson, all the way through to Kevin Ryan and so many others have been getting on trains and going down to DC and advocating for all tech for a really long time. And I had for a while in SF as part of, as a founder of Engine, where we were building an organization to truly represent the interests of startups with tech policy with some of the other work I've done, I, I had gotten a seat, but it, it felt a lot more lonely. And in New York, I think there's a, a lot more community and that's really awesome. But nevertheless, to your point, yeah, it was easy to ignore some version of tech policy in Washington. Tech was a darling and stuff changed and there's plenty to unpack there, but things have really changed. And I think more and more folks now recognize that policymaking and commerce don't happen together in a vacuum. I think the change and at least how I am looking at it, it's really this movement from the federal down to mattering more and more at the local and state level too. I studied Monopoly, Microsoft case of the 90s, all the big stuff. It was like very big moments of federal antitrust and this increasing friction of commerce, tech, and it's now the local government's like the most important because that's the one who's deciding on the factors that frankly you need to bring in top employees, bring in and also just reach your customers as you're trying to digitize the physical world. Totally. So I think that's a super interesting perspective. So I'm curious, what does Hangar have? Obviously, public facing companies in your focus, but what would you say if you can simplify like an overarching investment thesis, or if you have that, I know VCs or investors typically have that, but some people don't, <laughs> yeah. don't like that word. You're not going to let us just pretend that all we care about is the public sector market. Yeah, no, you're told, you're so right. I would say if you look across our entire portfolio, and if you look at stuff that excites us right now, with truly not a single exception, every one of these companies is taking the power of data and commoditized computational power and putting them to work in service of our customers. And, uh, and it is not uncommon to be spending time in a, a hangar meeting and you might as well play buzzword bingo with like TensorFlow. And is this on GCP or AWS? Questions like that. The, those are pretty powerful to us. And in, in part, they're powerful, not just because they're these are techniques and tactics and approaches that build really good product and insight writ large across all industry. But for our sector, for that public sector, which we fairly carefully define is not just building things for government, but building things in marketplaces where just to get market entry, you need to be working with government, whether that's healthcare, 
or that's public health officials and their COVID response, they are just now coming open to being okay using the cloud. And I put that in air quotes, but maybe the last major sector in the American economy to get okay with that, but here they are. And that's really powerful. And we spent a lot of time with our customers trying to help them understand possible as a result of moving to cloud environments and taking advantage of all the data they have. And Lord knows there's no industry better at data than government. Heck, just you think of the National Weather Service and they used to keep meteorological records hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And that was one of the most authoritative sources of data you had at all. Never mind all that they have now. Sorry, I, I gave you both the, the simple summary and then I took it a little further, but I would say if we can use computational power, commoditized computational power, we're pretty fair game right now. That's super interesting. And I, I want to zoom in a little bit on your model because I think, and I know probably people are going to roll their eyes, but obviously it's a huge conversation in tech and media right now about startup services, the media, VC firms and doing direct media is a huge thing and how you can service your portfolios. Or I, I'm not going to talk like if good, bad, whatever it's, however. But I'm just curious how you're thinking about like the services you provide, the startups, obviously from the policy perspective. Because I truly think when you think about services for proposal, that's something as you enter markets, that's truly the type of value that if you're trying to build scalable services to help, like startups truly need that. I've been around startups. No one typically of the first five to 10, unless they come from the government background, is starting to ask the policy questions. But as you're digitizing physical things, you should be, at least I think so, but I, that's my own personal taste. No, I appreciate that. Look, I'll go out there and say I'm a big fan of value-added services, right? That's another one of those amazing air quote terms. But I think that's the right way for firms to think about these, these services they provide as startups. And then it's the nuance that comes in the debate of, is it as simple as your venture fund that has a Rolodex of the right service providers to call, or do you have a full-time team? that works with the portfolio companies. And I've I've found all different flavors. I've built a firm that we ultimately sold to Google that was a bit more of a on the engineering side of things. At Hangar, what we really specifically focus on in, in terms of the services we provide to our portfolio companies have everything to do with our industry. How do you build those rapid prototypes to be able to show a customer very quickly that what you and they have discussed is now being reflected correctly in the first in that first iteration of what a product is going to look like. How do you, in our case, how do we work with our portfolio companies to have them better understand that in a democracy, only legislative bodies can appropriate? And so you can have an agency who's super eager to use your product, but if there are no dollars there, there it, it doesn't matter. And so our team being able to help guide them through just how that process works. Some version of like you learned about high school, in high school, you learned about how government works in college. Maybe you took another, like maybe you made it to 201. And if you spent a little time on the Hill, great, you got 301. If you spent a little bit of time in, in a federal agency, that's another version of 301. But it's pretty rare that folks get that sequencing and understand what it looks like and how what happens at the federal level. This piece of something you said earlier is radically different from what'll go on for a locality or, oh my God, a special district of which there are thousands in the United States alone. And really being able to help our companies and and their leadership mentally map what's possible and how you do it and how do you get the right order of operations and how do you make sure, like I said, that a customer can in fact transact. Because I think a pretty common mistake that 
you've seen and you're referring to it earlier, certainly I've seen is you've got, you'll have instances of good startups that are building good product. It's valuable. They look at government opportunities and they're like, oh, surely this is better than what the, whatever government currently uses or has. And if only it were that simple, unfortunately it's not. And uh, which isn't to say governments are making the wrong choices. It's just, they have a different set of incentives. Their incentives are to serve citizens and to do so relatively carefully. And, and so one of our big jobs is to help our companies correctly understand the challenges, navigate the risks and know what they're going into with their customers, you know, eyes wide open. And for us, that's how we produce some significant value add for the ecosystem. Last thing I'll add on that too, is oftentimes what's neat about our model, since we're starting up multiple companies at one time, is you can really connect dots across them in, in seeing opportunities. And so we certainly had instances of a company that has built a product that a particular customer is using that has that strong customer relationship, say with a large federal agency. And then at that point, that agency is more than happy to share, hey, by the way, this was great. Can you also build us? something that'll fix this other problem we have. And unfortunately, like 99% of the time, the answer needs to be no for any number of reasons. The market's not big enough. It's too bespoke. It's a problem that, that technology doesn't lend itself to or the regulatory environment just isn't worth the opportunity cost. But for every time, every whatever, 99 times you say no, one of those times you actually learn, like, oh yeah, that is a big problem. And we totally know how to build technology to solve that problem. And that's really awesome to, to start finding and seeing across our portfolio companies, across their customer sets. And for a team that's largely motivated by how do we do the most good and how do we make it sustainable? There's nothing better than a customer coming and saying, hey, build me this other thing too, would you mind? You, your point on the different levels of government and kind of the class connection on that, the course is that that really resonated with me because I think, you know, having worked, I worked, I worked, I didn't spend too much time in politics, but I saw the different levels and there's so many different incentives and constraints and like politics. At, everyone has an opinion in, about politics, whether they actually know what's going on or not. It's just one of those things. And I'm sure you get that as you've worked in government and like probably have had to talk to your family about explaining what you're doing and probably have not always had to, have, at least I have had to have discussions with people who don't necessarily agree with me explaining and they just, people are just going to have opinions about it. But I'm it, it's so true. But I will say to that point, John, that the, the coolest thing about when you're building tech mm -hmm. for these audiences, that there's nothing that in, in is freaking insane as things have been, become in the political narrative as of yeah. late. The one thing that seems to still unite folks, regardless of their perspective, is, hey, we have something that's going to fix your problem. And they're like, oh, tell me more. And, and I will say that unless they're just evil, there's no elected official who's ever said, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't want you to go make it more effective for me to provide services to my constituents. But I guess, and, and you've cued into this a, a couple of times and it prompted me, like, you bet, you're totally right. You intuited, like, at the city level with localities, the, the more local you get, the more, just the easier these discussions become because the manifest results you can produce that help people ends up just overcoming whatever partisan dispute, whatever community dispute, whatever somebody won, somebody lost type dichotomy might be at play. When they can go and be like, oh yeah, that it made our local health system so much more effective, which saved money by making people, by getting people healthier. Like it's just, 
it brings down barriers like you can't imagine. And that's super motivating at a time where, yeah, there's a ton of division in the country at a time where tech itself can be divisive. It's there's some grand irony of reminding us exactly what technology is, that it's not like big Internet platforms when you can use technology to help communities. I, I love that. And I'm glad you kind of did that. That was awesome. And I completely agree. So I'm curious what, when you're talking to the companies and the sectors, like what types of questions are they coming to you and asking? Cause I think, you know, if they recognize the problem or the opportunity to work with governments and the public, what type are, are they more technical questions? Like how do we talk to a mayor's office? What, I'm just curious, what are the questions that come up? And I'm sure they vary by sector size, but what, what do they come to you for? So for our portfolio companies, it's it we're, we work so closely with them. It's really the tactical. It's, mm-hmm. hey, we've had really good success building X, Y, and then it to Z. And can you just help us think through what the implications are of Z? And for us, if in, for a normal VC, you've got your normal matrix of here are the capital considerations and here are the opportunity cost considerations, whatever else. And you're, you're throwing all the normal dimensions on. We add this other one, which is, and what does the regulatory landscape look like? So that's what that looks like. But what I will say, Mimi, which is, which lands your question more specifically is probably less about our portfolio companies and more, you know, since we do what we do, we're fortunate enough to have just all sorts of startups, friends, companies, come to us and ask questions. And I'm a really big fan of, yeah, answer what questions you can and pay it forward. Certainly so many people have answered my questions over my career and I really enjoy it. And it's always interesting to me to see companies trying to understand the regulatory landscape where they often have a frame of one thing, which I alluded to, which is, Surely, since we have the better product and service, government should want to transact with us. And it's often not that simple. I think that's one thing I see a lot of where there's just like a little bit of nuance missing on why it just, it can't be that simple. Oftentimes though, they're thinking about policy debates and trying to figure out what role they can play and what that looks like. And and I think companies often don't realize that you don't have to be a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter to gain the attention of officials, whether at the state level or the federal level. In fact, in my experience, even at the federal level, there's always this preference to be interacting with a startup executive who's got an interesting story to tell and a particular point of view. And, and so I love through through my work with Engine to have had over these last many years the opportunity to constantly introduce startups to elected officials. And that's one way to overcome whatever the concerns are about Google or Facebook or whoever else they're easy to pick on and just make it about the brass tacks of what is the startup trying to do? How are they trying to do it? And in what way does regulation make it possible or threaten or keep the startup from doing the good work that that it wants to be doing. And that part's super exciting. And it's just, it's hard if you're a smaller company, you're not, you're probably good at as a leadership team is laying down code and operating your business. And that is what you should be good at. 
you're probably not as adroit at, at policy and who do I need to be talking to and how should I be talking to you? And frankly, like some of what I derived stereotypical Silicon Valley for is that we talked about earlier, that longstanding belief of just leave me alone and let me do my work, you know, but we live in a society that's really important and you do have to engage. And I really tip my hat to every one of those startup founders who takes the time anyway to get involved in policy discussions, those that impact their company and those that don't. And I've just always enjoyed answering their questions and helping them understand what they can do to make a difference. And I think on some level too, educating them that their voice is powerful, that them to speaking out on an immigration debate or patent reform or a bunch of these things that feel abstract. If you're just a startup founder or like you think you just have to go with the flow, like no chance. It doesn't work that way. And you can have a really big impact, right? So, so my joke is always, you can either have a lawyer write a memo and tell you what some interpretation is of the law as it stands, or you can work to change the law. And if you're really an entrepreneur, I think your natural inclination is, yeah, forget the memo. Let's go get the right thing done, which you know has this odd consequence of, shocker, now you're an engaged citizen. Is there anything any better? Yeah, no. And I feel like this isn't a hot take to say, but obviously you're talking about policy debate, but obviously I think there's been a big shift over the last week, the new administration. It seems like there's a lot of reinvigorated policy debate in Washington, a lot more productive regulatory, just a lot more productive government, frankly, in place. So I'm curious, how do you, how are you looking at the new administration and how it can help innovation and what it can do and play a role to kickstart innovation at such a challenging time for the country, obviously coming out of the crisis. And I think they were, the Biden administration is going to be looking how to help innovation and tech is, has a more connected role to government no matter what. But I'd love to hear just a little bit more specifically on that, how you're thinking about it and how maybe you're trying to talk to startups and help them understand maybe how this is a opportunity for them to really get more done because maybe you just weren't able to do and have and participate in the debate quite in the same way as you were four years ago. Yeah, it's, I think really with any administration shift, there's a renewed opportunity for innovators generally to engage with their new government and help that government as it puts its staff in place, understand you know where the marketplace stands and what's possible and what ought to be possible. And those components are what are required, particularly as a new administration sets its agenda and its priorities. When I get asked this question, it's really hard for me. And maybe this is like a little bit of my odd set of experiences kicking in to not say there's nothing better for new companies getting built and entrepreneurs feeling like they can take the leap and start something new or try something radical than a stable economic environment. That's just so important. And as the Biden team goes about thinking through COVID response and how to produce increased levels of resiliency. And I should say on that too, like that's all about governors as well and mayors, right? It's all about how do you bring that resiliency to bear as fast as possible? How do you get folks vaccinated? How do you stabilize our system and and get us on track to the new normal 
that then allows entrepreneurs to go and, and make the leap and be like, I can help. I, I want to do A, B, and C. And, and, and so then I think it really comes down to then how do those officials keep an open mind? One of the things that I find most exciting is this bizarre silver lining of, of, on the tragedy that is COVID in that it brought down some walls around really artificial walls or walls that were born by history, but no longer had quite, quite the same relevance around regulatory policy for health data and what that looked like and how you process that data and how systems have data available to them to make more informed decisions for patients, more personal decisions for patients, frankly. And that kind of innovation is really powerful and really important and needs to happen. And so I think what the Biden team sees is that they've got a lot of windows. And frankly, I think the toughest challenge for them is how to make sure they're focusing on the right handful of things where they can have biggest, fastest impact Mm because otherwise they can risk boiling the oceans. You lose, yeah, you can lose momentum pretty fast and you lose immediacy, which is when you have an agenda and I'm sure politics that immediacy can sometimes carry the day. But what like maybe, and I don't know, is there anything like specific levers or policy levers that you think like in terms of, is it like more funding for education and like just more specific, maybe tactical things that you're thinking about and maybe looking to do? I know these policy conversations about how the government can spur innovation are not new and people have well-informed opinions. So I'm just curious if there's anything like, do you think they need to be creating tax credits to incentivize remote work hubs and the rise of new tech hubs like Miami? Do they need to be fixing infrastructure to allow actual cars and people to get around cities yeah. better? But like, yeah. what are, what are maybe a, one or two like specific things that the Biden administration can do like in the quick near term that would maybe have a big impact? Oh, man, John, I'm so boring on this one. I really do believe it's like creating more stable and resilient. Hey, that's boring. I, I, I worked in the government, so boring and like stable is all. I think stable government's a good thing for everyone. It just happens to be true. And because like, here's the thing I, like, I always found with government, like, they're not good at trying to predict the next innovation that's going to come. So at some point, don't try. That's not, then that's not your job as a policymaker either. Your policy, your, your role as a policymaker is to, you know, understand how to maximize resource for the people that, that you represent and make the, the universe of great things available to them, or at least that's the American way of thinking. And, and so you, you totally hit on a couple of things that sh- sure are vitally important. For me, one of the ones that always will come to mind is broadband access. It feels a little, little bit ridiculous to say that right now in a time when folks are you know, doing remote school and, and a lot of folks are having the luxury of doing remote work, but many don't. And, and you have these deep inequities and obviously solving that has like incredible near-term benefits. I feel a little bit weird saying it because I think it's a drum that some of us were banging way before a, a, a pandemic that would have e- extreme near-term consequence. But I also think that it would behoove electeds to realize that there is a moment where high-skilled, high-tech work can now be done in increasing ways from anywhere. And so to the extent that there were some who thought that this was something that was uniquely Silicon Valley and like maybe New York or Boston, maybe, right? It's not. And you find successful companies that have tech companies that have grown up everywhere. 
And that's a really a condition that will only grow and should be embraced. And so it starts, I hope, a trend, a near-term trend toward reminding us that high-tech, high-growth startup activity is, in, in this case, an American activity that isn't bound by geography. And I think that's really deeply exciting and something that's on the cusp. And as much as you know, from, from your experiences, sometimes it's about new policies and sometimes it's also about not messing with policies that exist. Like a lightning rod right now is around CDA 230 and it became this like insane hot topic. And just about every policy proposal I've ever seen coming out of DC right now to how to handle some of the challenges in 230. For the listeners, can you just go, like, just, I know, some people know 230, yeah. like, it gets, I feel like some people might have zero idea on that for. Please, if you have zero idea about 230, consider yourself lucky, but then maybe go read the Wikipedia article. Yeah, no, basically what I would say about CDA 230 is it is the federal guidance that has allowed user-generated content to proliferate on the internet. And, and reason being, it's a provision that large companies will cite where it's quite clear they are not responsible for proactively monitoring, editing, moderating the content that appears on their platforms. And for me, with 230, you've got, it's gotten a lot of political hate and what does it mean for twitter what does it mean for misinformation on facebook yeah. it's used by both sides i think a lot at least i see it it's used by both sides for opportunity 100%. you can make the argument on both you can use it to make the opportunity you can make the argument on both sides it's good bad it's really like just complicated it's that's exactly right and and the challenge though when you look at the proposals you don't really have to have a point of view to read the proposals and be like oh yeah all this does is make it so that the really big platforms forever have a monopoly and no startup can really enter a marketplace without an extraordinary set of resources. And, and that's just the latest in a line of where sometimes policies risk overreaching and having unintended consequences and the unintended consequences are consequences borne by, by frankly, entrepreneurs and small businesses that haven't even been born yet. Yeah, I know you're a busy guy and I don't want to take up too much of your time. So I'm just curious, where can people check out your work? I know probably Hangar has a website and like portfolio, like where can people stay up? I know I'm going to probably be looking at what your thoughts are on policy. You've helped me understand at least. I, I know what Section 230 is. I've had to write talking points about it before. <laughs> I'm uh, sorry. But I certainly understand at least the context and why it's important from that explanation a lot more now. And I'm probably going to be quoting it in, whenever I use it in an article one day. So thank you for that. <laughs> Pleasure's mine. I think I should probably be apologizing. But uh, no, I. so by all means, the easiest way, uh, Hanger's website is hanger.is, kind of like Hanger is. Check us out. We've got blog and you can also follow us on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter at Josh Mendelson. I'm more of a retweeter than a tweeter, but I'll work on that, particularly as these debates get lively again. But but seriously, I think for everyone out there that's working at that intersection of tech and policy and tech and government, I think there's really nothing better you can be doing with your time right now. Our country needs you. Our cities need you. And, and tech is all about how to make a limited set of resources go as far as as completely possible and 
heck, if that's not what we're trying to do right now in the environment we find ourselves in this pandemic, I don't know what is. So thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, Josh, and thank you so much. This is awesome. I, is I want it. We'll figure out a time and what we can, what I can bring you back on to make sense. I think everyone will get a lot of insights from this and want to hear your thoughts on something else. So thank you and talk to you soon. Thanks, John. One final ask before I go, please continue to share the Urban Tech newsletter and podcast with friends, family, and colleagues. Anyone who could benefit from learning about how tech is changing our cities more and more every day. Thanks, and I'll talk to you soon.